0: well good evening everybody thank you for coming out tonight uh, Sunday night is not easy rain is not easy all reasons to be home doing something else uh, but I appreciate uh, you all being here tonight I am also grateful for I'm used to a little bit of a bigger podium sorry <laughs> I'm grateful for uh, Christ church and Um, Covenant Fellowship is grateful for Christ Church here and the way that you stand for the cause of the gospel and promote the gospel, preach the gospel, uh, seek to save the lost here in Westchester. Um, We are grateful for you as a church, and we are grateful for Raymond uh, as a senior pastor. I've gotten to know him over the last several years and appreciate uh, his friendship, appreciate All that he uh, does in the community and his gathering of the the Philadelphia Pastors Collective, which he does monthly, uh, which has just been uh, a great way to interact uh, with like-minded, gospel-centered churches. So we really value uh, this church and uh, are grateful for you all. So uh, let's jump in here. Um, I thought I'd start. uh, Friday mornings are... Abortion mornings at the Westchester Planned Parenthood, which is just five blocks away, three blocks that way, two blocks that way, on South Wayne Street. Um, and so, on any number of uh, mornings during the year, I, not often, but we will go down there and pray. My wife goes down and prays many Fridays. Uh, so, on June 9th, I went down to spend just one hour praying down in front of. Uh, the Planned Parenthood, and seeking to help women and men who are coming in for abortions. When I got there, there were already five ladies praying when I arrived, which was nice to greet one another, and uh, most of us were familiar with one another. The lot already had several cars. While I was there, the hour that I was there, three cars pulled in, and uh, we sought to engage and talk with uh, the women and the men that were uh, driving up, we sought to offer them help encourage them that, that Chester County uh, Connect Care Pregnancy Resource Center was right uh, two blocks away and uh, encouraging them to not uh, go forward with this. Uh, that day, that morning, I saw a new escort because we have escorts there. They tend to know us and we tend to know them, not by name, but by face. Uh, but there was a, a new guy and he, he had an odd kind of military mode to him. He he would stand down on the line because there's a line we can't cross, and he would stand with his arms folded, and then he would do like this military turn, you know, to, to walk back up. Um, my wife and a couple of ladies were up on the sidewalk. I was down on the corner, and uh, a guy drove past and made a Fairly rude comment uh, to the ladies first and then to me right there on the corner. Um, I heard the ladies laughing. I walked up to see, and they were just saying, Oh, it's good resorting to seventh grade level insults out here on the sidewalks. And at, right after that guy passed, another guy who really seemed to be about the same age, same uh, kind of individual, just offered me uh, an encouragement, you know, just was supportive of what we were doing while we were out there. Uh, while we were interacting with one couple, they were getting out of the car. They became agitated. We offered to help. We just said, hey, we can help you. There's, there's free ultrasounds available. She cursed at us and walked in. And he came down and started addressing and saying how annoying it was to have us there. He said he was from Philadelphia. He said, we don't know what it's like in Philadelphia. He said his dad's not around. His dad doesn't support him, even though his dad's alive. And he said, in Philadelphia, that's what it's life, like. And we shouldn't bring life into the world to just experience that. He kept asking me, are you ready right now to adopt a child right now? Can you give me $500 right now? Um, We gently tried to respond um, that he he didn't have to kill his child right there, that there were people ready to help. If finances were an issue, there were finances available. People can help. Uh, But he was angry and agitated. He walked away. Uh, One man who lives across the street was watering some plants and came over and uh, was talking to me. And he actually apologized for the rude comment that was made out of the car. And he said, "I don't, I don't uh, agree with one side or the other, but uh, I just wanted to let you know that they shouldn't treat you like that." Um, I talked with a couple that was there praying, and there had been a, a couple of um, young women that had been pretty abrasive over uh, several months, and. Um, He saw one coming down the street and he said, oh, here comes my friend. And he went to talk to her. And they were having a normal conversation. When he got back, I asked what had happened. And he had told me that the week before, two weeks before, uh, she had been becoming agitated. And he had felt led by the Lord to give her a Dunkin' Donuts gift card. So he called her over, said, I'd like you to come over. And she said, you know, why? He said, I want to give you something. And uh, she asked, "Why why are you being nice to me? And he said, I'm, I'm always nice, to which his wife laughed. And, and the girl said, No, you're not. And that struck a chord in, in this man, his pro life. And uh, he said, Well, would you forgive me for the times that I haven't been nice? And she said, Well, I haven't always been nice either. Uh, would you forgive me too? And they said that it was like a miracle that happened right there. And those two young ladies that had for months been agitating have really not been instigating anyone over the last several weeks. They also told me that the week before, there was a uh, mother and daughter who had pulled up on the opposite side of the clinic, because the clinic has its own parking lot with a the line there, had pulled over and uh, gotten out of the car, and the escorts came across the street because they want to intercept anyone coming into the clinic. But it turned out it was just our friends, um, Sherry Stair and her daughter, um, Ashley, who were coming to pray. And so the escorts were a little out of sort because they had walked over to protect them and realized they were for the opposing side. So I prayed there for an hour, and then on my way back, I, I drove past Chester County Connect Care, which is um, on Market Street and only two blocks away from the Planned Parenthood. And I just pulled over and stopped in to say hello to the staff there. Um, we know each other a bit. And when I was talking there with Kristen she said that they had a woman coming in that morning who was abortion-minded but was coming to get an ultrasound. Uh, she was feeling pressured uh, by the Father, and so they asked, she asked me to pray. And so I got back in my car, and I sent an email out to our pro-life team. We have a, we have a pro-life team of about 100 people in our, in our church that get our emails. Um, people are active in different levels. But I sent it out saying, here's the situation. Connect Care asks us to pray. And a few days later, I emailed Kristen to find out um, if the girl had come for the appointment. And she sent me this email. It said, good morning, Joe. Praise the Lord. She decided to have this baby. She's about 12 weeks and was elated seeing the ultrasound. She came with a supportive male friend who was not her boyfriend, but invited him to see the ultrasound too. There's a history of life's challenges for both of them. Both were accepting of prayer and open to hearing from Scripture. Please pray that they feel the presence of the Lord leading them, and they may remain strong in His holy name to combat the struggles of the world, that the baby is healthy and continues to grow and develop throughout the pregnancy, that she has the courage to face her family and her boyfriend and stand firm in her choice, for God's will for her life to unfold with clarity before her, and for all who are involved, grow closer to the Lord with every breath. Thank you for stopping by, keeping such strong connections in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your prayer team for praying. God bless you, my friend, Kristen. Now, I'm not sharing this with you to impress you with my pro-life work or example, but more to encourage you and to inform you. That's just one slice of one hour out of the month, but there is a lot going on in our community related to abortion and the protection of the unborn. That morning, God was moving through prayer. That morning, people's lives were playing out in public. That morning, several children lost their lives. And that morning, one child was given the right to live. And it all happened within five blocks of where we're sitting right now. It's playing out town by town, state by state, and throughout our country, right around the corner from our churches. Now, abortion is a, is a hard topic. It's a sensitive topic. Topic. And it's my prayer that as we look at this issue, as we look at Scripture, we will find our moral bearings and the real hope for the protection of the unborn and healing for those who have been affected by abortion. The Lord is compassionate, and at the outset here this evening, I just want to speak to anyone here who has abortion in their past. Um, You are not alone, and we are not here to condemn you, but to point you to hope and to point you to mercy and to truth in God. Because Scripture calls us to compassion, and our compassion is rooted in the fact that we have a God who is full of compassion towards us. He sent His own Son as a sacrifice for our disobedience and for our sin. And he offers us forgiveness for all of our sin. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all need to remember that there are members of our churches who have had abortions. In our church, God has met them with forgiveness and healing. Uh, I have prayed with members of our church as they confessed having abortions or assisting others in having an abortion. They regretted and mourned those decisions, but they found grace in God and were able to walk away from their past and into forgiveness and into a renewed commitment to protect and defend the life of the unborn. So take heart, because there is peace and reconciliation found in the Lord. Abortion remains a sensitive topic because it speaks to our intimate lives and because in our culture it's been sold as an issue of privacy. Because of the nature of the issue, it necessarily also has political implications. And that sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable because it feels like it is a political issue. But abortion is a biblical issue. It's a biblical issue with political implications. And we want to ground ourselves in biblical conviction tonight. Also, it's challenging to motivate people to get involved and to take action. Even people who would say, yes, I'm pro-life, I'm committed to pro-life ethics... Um, it still remains an uncomfortable topic. It remains an unpopular topic. It feels divisive. Some people feel like it competes with or distracts from the, the message of the gospel, which should be central in our churches. And when it comes up, we tend to feel more guilty than motivated. Scott Klusenzorf tells the story of uh, of really the moment that changed his life Um, going to a prayer breakfast that normally gathered a large crowd of pastors, uh, and he was encouraged to come by the person organizing it. This particular one was going to be on abortion, and uh, so he showed up, and there were only four couples there, uh, what would normally have gathered many people. But he found that that was the night that God called him uh, to take action and become an apologist and begin an organization that would teach and train uh, the, um, in pro-life ethics and pro-life apologetics. And so we should not be discouraged by, um, by a lack of attendance or for having difficulty motivating people. We should find ourselves um, willing to press in to motivate. And so the goal tonight is not to make anyone feel guilty, but to prompt you to consider uh, the weight of this issue, the theology of this issue, how to engage others on this issue, and how you can take action and be motivated by grace and biblical conviction. So I want to start with the weight of the issue. One of the reasons I think that we can lack motivation um, or fervor in this uh, issue is because we don't really understand the scope of the atrocity. We generally know... um, that we are against abortion or uncomfortable with abortion, but we really don't know much about it. It's important that we recognize how prevalent abortion is in our country and, uh, and see. I mean, it is constantly in our headlines. Uh, abortion is a huge part of our political culture in the United States and really throughout the world. Now, on a positive note, Uh, As Isaac mentioned, we have had recent reason to rejoice. June 24th of 2022 was a huge victory and really an answer to prayer uh, with Roe v. Wade overturned by the Dobbs decision. Roe v. Wade was the 1973 decision that made abortion legal and federally protected in all 50 states through finding a right to privacy that is never mentioned uh, in the Constitution, um, and using that to defend abortion. But the Dobbs decision last year reversed this. Uh, And at the time of the Dobbs decision, the decision was made, there were 13 states that had laws, trigger laws, that were ready to go in effect when Roe v. Wade was overturned that outlawed abortion. That was Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. And there were laws, those laws went into effect as soon as Roe was overturned. And there were about 10 other states that had laws that were getting ready to go. But there were 22 or 23 states, um, so that would have left about 22 to 23 states with abortion restrictions or outlawing abortion. Um, So these are wonderful reasons for us to rejoice. At the same time, there were other states, about 26 states, including California, Colorado, Delaware, uh, New Mexico, that were ready to go the opposite way, ready to keep abortion at at all um, stages of development uh, legal. So what we have is the decision has gone from being on a federal level to being carried out state by state. And so, while uh, the Dobbs decision is a wonderful victory and one that we should continue to celebrate and mark, uh, yesterday they had a March for Life in uh, Washington, D.C., and they're looking to uh, change the March for Life, which used to be in January, on January 22nd, which marked Roe v. Wade, to be uh, on June 24th. Um, which uh, is a a much better thing to celebrate, this Dobbs decision, this overturning. And it's also a much better time to be outside marching, (laughs) Uh, if you've ever been to the Washington March in January. Um, So it is a wonderful victory, but not a sufficient victory. Um, Children in the womb are still at risk in the United States, and there is still uh, a need to protect them legally in each individual state. Continuing on with the weight of the issue, in 2020, Planned Parenthood, which is America's largest abortion provider, they stated in their annual report that they had a 3.88% increase in abortions that year. It's gone up over the last two years as well, uh, providing 345,672 abortions that year. Those are their numbers. Um, They're the highest numbers on Uh, record over the last several years even though their overall client numbers have been declining Um, they also received a 9% increase in their taxpayer funding receiving an all time high of 616 million dollars in taxpayer funding so Planned Parenthood receives 1.7 million dollars every day of federal tax money Um, and they are the largest abortion provider in the United States Some other statistics, the national number of abortions in 2020, 930,160. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistic branch. In Pennsylvania, according to Pennsylvania Family Institute, they reported there were 33,206 abortions in Pennsylvania in 2021. It's the highest number of abortions since 2012 and also marks the fourth straight year of increase. Of those 33,000, 3,000 babies were aborted after three months in pregnancy. More than 400 were aborted after five months in pregnancy. Um, And in Westchester, right here, as I said around the corner, there were 823 abortions in 2021, which was down 16%, hopefully due to our presence and praying in, in some ways. Chemical abortion has also been on the rise. You've seen articles, I'm sure, uh, on the abortion pills. Uh, last year marked the first time that chemical abortion surpassed surgical abortions in Pennsylvania. And the FDA also announced abortion pills can be sold at pharmacies. So there were more than 18,000 chemical abortions, more than half that were report, um, uh, in Pennsylvania. It was a record high. So there's a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics. But remember that the word abortion means that a child has died. All 930,160 children died nationally. 345,672 died at Planned Parenthood. 33,206 children died in Pennsylvania and 823 children died in Westchester. Now, the world says that abortion is something to be celebrated, but we must not celebrate it because God's Word holds out for us not the destruction of the innocent and defenseless, but the protection. Proverbs 24, 10-12 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Of that verse, the ESV study Bible says, claiming ignorance of a widely known evil is no excuse for not rescuing the victims of slaughter. For God knows the true condition of the heart. The one who embraces wisdom can never be content with merely seeking the well-being of himself or his family. He must also seek justice as widely as he can. And Jonathan Lehman, in his book, How the Nation's Rage, says, the closer you are related to a situation of injustice, the closer geographically, the closer relationally, the closer in terms of formal responsibilities, the more morally culpable you are if, if you do not ensure the wrongs are turned to rights. And so I believe Scripture calls us as Christians to take action for injustice in our country and injustice in our own neighborhoods. So let's take a look at ways to clarify this issue. And what is the real issue at hand? The issue itself is actually very simple. What is the unborn? Are the unborn members of the human family? Does each and every human being have an equal right to life? See, one of the challenges we have is that people love to change the subject when it comes to talking about abortion. The issue is not about who supports women or or doesn't support women. It's not about the freedom of choice. It's not about health care. It's not about poverty or any of these other issues. It's about what is the unborn. And does every human being have an equal right to life? Again, Scott Klusendorf, uh, I, I highly recommend his book. We have a list of resources available at the back. Uh, it has several sermons, books, uh, films, uh, websites. And uh, his book, The Case for Life, Life, Equipping Christians to Engage Culture, I highly recommend that. Um, It is a a wonderful resource uh, to engage. He gives uh, several apologetics against abortion, but he he loves to try to form it in a very simple argument. So he has a one-minute pro-life argument that he says begins with a syllogism and then a one-minute pro-life explanation. And this is what he says. He says, the syllogism is this, one- it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. Two, abortion kills innocent human beings. Three, therefore abortion is wrong. And then he says, I'm pro-life because it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. The science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You were not a part of another human being like skin cells on the back of Your hand, you were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. There is no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. A difference of size or a level of development or environment or a degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying that we could kill you then, but not now. So in one minute, a very clear Expression. So let's look at a few of those aspects, a few of those apologetics. Looking at science and the science of embryology. Science is the study of the natural world through observation and through experiment. And science has clearly proven from the study of human development that from conception, we are fully human and fully complete individual human beings. The only thing that changes after Conception is our size, we grow bigger. Our level of development, we grow as as an organism. Our environment, we change places. Uh, And our degree of dependency. None of these things makes a person less human. Science tells us conclusively that once an egg and sperm unite, both individual cells cease to be. And together they form a separate and individual cell, the zygote. A leading embryology textbook called the Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology by Keith Moore says that this new cell, this highly specialized totipotent cell, marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual This cell carries in it the full 46 chromosomes that mark our individual and absolutely unique DNA. Professor Michelin Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School testified before the judicial subcommittee that it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human being begins at conception. In in short, we don't come from embryos. We once were embryos. The only thing that we lacked back then was maturity and development. Um, Science confirms that we are human beings from conception. And when it comes to ethics... Some will argue that there should be a distinction between human non-persons and human persons. Non-persons can ethically be destroyed because they lack certain qualities like sentience or self-awareness and intellect. Or they're not developed or complex enough to philosophically qualify as persons. But these arguments are highly arbitrary. They can only logically lead to the understanding that if personhood is granted based on intellect, self-awareness and the like then these things come in varying degrees both at different stages of human development so think infant or toddler or teenager or adult or senior and they also vary across different individuals think of levels of IQ or different physical abilities if that's true then personhood becomes a sliding scale that does not allow a defense for basic human rights since the further development uh, since the further developed are more worthy of rights than the less developed. And who then is to say what level of self-awareness, intellect, or physical ability qualifies for those rights? So, ethically speaking, the only defense of human rights comes from the understanding that all human beings, at every stage of development, are equally valuable and deserving of life. So this is this is an appeal to the substance argument. Uh, uh, David Owen Philson in a recent copy of Westminster Magazine said if it sounds dehumanizing to call an unborn baby just a clump of cells that's because it is that's what you're doing you're denying the humanity of that individual we have to val- we have value because we are human because of the substance of what we are, not because of anything added to that or anything that we obtain in addition to that. If you fail to hold to the substance view of understanding human worth and value, then you will have difficulty arguing, or you will not be able to argue, for the fundament, for fundamental human equality. Again, Scott Klusendorf says, From the moment you begin to exist, there is no substantial change in your essential nature. Moreover, you are intrinsically valuable in virtue of being you, not in virtue of some attribute you acquire at some point, such as nice looks or intelligence. This is not a new argument. Uh, Abraham Lincoln used this similar argument when he was arguing against slavery. He says, you say A is white and B is black. It's color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Well, take care. By this rule, you are a slave to the first man you meet with fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean that whites are more intellectually, are intellectually superior of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Well, take care again. By this rule, you were to be a slave of the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But you say it was a question of interest. If you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. This is the sliding scale if we don't trust in the absolute value of human beings because of the substance of being part of the human family. So these arguments from uh, science and from ethics uh, come. And I brought those before we even look at scripture, just because so often uh, people are wondering is there a way to defend or to stand for rights for the unborn without making a religious appeal, per se, or that gets thrown back at us, that uh, you're just making a, an argument from religion. There are very good apologetic arguments uh, from science, from ethics uh, to be made. However, Uh, There is no other foundation we know to stand on other than the truth of Scripture. And Scripture is clear on the value of human life. Scripture begins in Genesis chapter 1 by defining the human being as a person created in the image of God. And therefore holding a unique dignity among all creatures and being of inestimable worth. Every human being of inestimable worth. So valuable, more valuable than silver or gold. So valuable, he's willing, Christ is willing to shed his own blood to redeem humans. The Bible repeatedly communicates that God knows and forms people while they are in their mother's womb. As described in Psalm 139 when it says God saw our unformed substance, knows all of the days of our lives before we lived any of them, knit us together in secret. When God called and spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In Jeremiah 1.5. In Luke 1.41 you have John the Baptist responding with a joyous leap to his, in his mother's womb when he sensed the presence of Jesus Christ, who was also in his mother's womb. Scripture confirms that we are human from conception, created in the image of God. And think about the, the wonder of this argument And how it allows us to care for individuals facing abortion. First off, it is the apologetic for why we defend the child in the womb. And why it is is not right to kill them. But it also allows us to present the ethic of loving them both. uh, Loving the the child and loving uh, the mother who is carrying the child. Consider how uh, we are able to approach a woman in need by reminding her of her value and her worth. Pastor Brian Chapel says, convincing a woman of her inherent value to God, regardless of what other people may think or threaten, is a powerful tool in the battle against abortion. It's not a political tool, but it is a powerful leverage in the soul to say that the reason you need not act against the instincts and desires of your own heart in order to placate another or secure their acceptance is that your Father God calls you precious. He looks at you in your darkness, your despair and shame, and says, you are mine. We can tell these women you don't have to do this to be loved or to be valued because you are a work and a wonder of God. You are somebody apart from the approval and acceptance of the person who is pressuring you to abort your child, because you are precious to God. So Scripture clearly speaks of when life begins, and it speaks of our value in creating the image of God. It also speaks of the value of the child in the womb. One scripture that is often used is Exodus twenty-one, twenty-two to twenty-five. It says. It's part of the law. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the ju- what the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound. Stripe for stripe. And this is often used to say, see, the two men are fighting, the woman gets hit, the baby is aborted, but everything's fine. But um, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, if one were to hit her so that the child came out, but there is no harm. The Scripture presents it as the child may be born, but there's no harm. If there is harm to the mother or the child, the retribution is equal. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, the scriptures affirm the value of human life in the womb. In Psalm 37, 28, it says, The Lord loves Justice, And we know that God is a God of justice throughout the scriptures. And so the scriptures teaching of God's heart for justice, justice for um, uh, the weak, for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the oppressed. This also is a part of the scriptural support for valuing human life. God as a God of justice. My pastor, Jared Mellinger, uh, when he was speaking on the church and abortion, he said this. He said, I believe it is unarguable that the preeminent human rights problem of our day and the most urgent ethical issue of our, our nation has ever faced is abortion. And as a church, we will continue to engage this issue with a sense of urgency until the day that abortion is unthinkable and unavailable. The abortion industry is a major justice issue, primarily because of what it does to the weakest and most vulnerable people, the unborn. But also because the abortion industry targets the disabled, girls, and ethnic minorities. If you care about justice in any one of these areas, not only the unborn, but also disabilities, gender, ethnicity, you, care, you will care deeply about the issue of the unborn. For churches to talk about abortion is not a distraction from our mission to proclaim the truth, but an essential expression of that mission and a crucial application of biblical justice. So we have science, we have ethics, we have scripture. And again, David Owen Filson says, it's only a biblical ethic that can account for why life matters at all. The life of a pregnant mother or the life of an unborn child. Any approach to the issue of abortion that is not grounded in a biblical ethic has given up the transcendent basis for human rights and makes all human beings expendable. And this again brings us back to the need for the gospel and the centrality of the gospel. These two uh, theologies uh, go hand in hand with one another the fact that humans are created in the image of God and the fact that God gave himself to redeem us. John Piper says of being gospel-centered, far greater than the danger of abortion is the danger of hell. Rescuing people for eternal life is more crucial and more loving than rescuing babies from abortion. In other words, we care about all suffering and especially eternal suffering. I think it precisely this maintenance of spiritual proportion that keeps it in clear view that our citizenship is in heaven and that we're rescuing lost people who await for our Savior. That spiritual proportion and maintenance of spiritual priority is what gave us Christian credibility over decades in the cause for life rather than sinking down to the level of being world-oriented do-gooders. Leave it to Piper to (laughs) say it like it is. And so we find that the gospel is to remain central as it expresses the value of human life and yet as Pro-life, the central issue, is the protection of the unborn. So let's look at a couple of objections to pro-life arguments. You will often find in conversations or in articles that you read, uh, videos that you see, that there are certain things that are placed up uh, in opposition to pro-life ethics. One is that pro-lifers only care about the fetus in the womb. You don't care about the women. You don't care about the children after they're born. They only care about the fetus in the womb. Now, this is an assertion. It's not an argument. It's an accusation. It's not an an argument. Um, But I believe this is uh, easily refuted. First, by just being aware that even if that's true, even if it's true that Uh, we only care about children in the womb. By saying we don't care about them afterward, that doesn't give an explanation for why they should be legally allowed to be killed as human beings. So even if we concede, okay, we only care about that, still, it's not right to kill an innocent human being. But the fact is that just by looking around um, the effects of or the efforts that are put in by the pro-life community in crisis pregnancy centers, um, in churches, um, there is overwhelming support and resource available for uh, women and men who are facing unplanned pregnancies. Um, and uh, again, David Filson says, pro-life people, the assertion goes, only care about the baby in the womb, Because it's easy, the fetus can't place any demands on the pro-life person, which is convenient, right? Curiously, those making such claims never seem willing to do the research that would yield mountains of data on just how sacrificially committed pro-life Christians are to women and children and men affected by the realities of choosing life instead of abortion. Perhaps a quick visit to a crisis pregnancy center would temper the quickness of pro-abortion faithful to play the pro-lifers or only pro-birth card. I told you, I stopped by Connect Care. You're welcome to at any point. Go and knock on their door. They would love to meet you. Introduce yourself. Hear about what they do. Um, not only do they offer uh, free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds, but they offer parenting classes. They offer um, resources like diapers and, and uh, car seats and babies' clothes and all of these things. Um, they walk with. Uh, a woman, as she makes a decision about who should parent her child, um, and and they care for them, and then their goal is to also be preaching the gospel to them and connecting them with local churches. So um, there there really is no weight to this argument. Some will say, "Well, Jesus never mentions abortion. We shouldn't really. You shouldn't be all that concerned about abortion. Jesus never even talks about abortion." Um, I think an appropriate question is then, are you suggesting that what Jesus does not mention as wrong is to be understood as acceptable? Jesus never comments on rape, child abuse, lynching, any number of other issues. Um, It's a poor argument to say that because Christ didn't speak against a particular evil, that therefore it is not evil. Some will say you shouldn't impose your beliefs on others. Um, This is also a a false argument because every law imposes moral beliefs on someone else. Do not steal. It's illegal to steal from other people. This is imposing a moral uh, uh, belief on everyone. We all have to agree uh, on this. David Filson again says, Abortion is a transcendent moral issue precisely because it transcends all religious beliefs and even an outspoken non-belief. Only religious bigotry allows pro-choice supporters to summarily dismiss opposition to their cause as nothing more than the narrow-minded religiosity of the Catholic Church and Bible Belt fundamentalists. <laughs> yeah, strong words there. But that idea of of religious bigotry is what that argument is really behind that argument. Um, What about rape or incest? And this often comes up when we're talking about laws and things. Um, Now, it's really important that we are careful uh, to care for people. Both of these situations are absolutely tragic sins and very traumatic. And we want to always be ready to support victims who have experience this. But getting back to that question of what is the unborn, how a person is conceived does not change the reality that they are a human being of eternal and inestimable worth and does not give anyone the right to kill, to kill them. What about birth defects, Down syndrome, genetic abnormalities? Brian Chappell says, I've discovered that part of the divine imprint in my own heart is to love as a precious gift one who is imperfect. If we really lose this capacity to care for the flawed, if all we finally value are those who are whole, lovely, and well-formed, then we will ultimately find that we are incapable of loving any. For we are all fallen creatures in a fallen world, and if we must discard or kill what does not please us, then we will find there is no value in the old or the infirm, the incapable, or in our own imperfect lives. The argument that someone may develop differently or not develop fully is not an argument against their worth or against their right for life. Some will also say you're just making a religious argument. That's a religious argument. Um, If that accusation is presented to us, we can always just ask questions of that. What do they mean by religious? Well, you're making a faith argument based on your faith. Well, what do you mean by faith? And then you can ask, tell me why you think anything has value and a right to life. Once they begin to ask that question, they realize every argument that is made that deals with value, that deals with uh, why a human life matters, is going to get into the issue of metaphysics, is going to get into the issue of um, theology and uh, religious argument. There's no way to avoid that in making ethical uh, arguments. And then also, uh, the argument gets made that that people will be seeking illegal abortions and that women will die uh, from illegal abortions. And this was a, a big argument that was made when Roe v. Wade uh, became about in the 1970s. Um, but actually, this argument was based on uh, on actually fabricated statistics. Um, uh, Dr. Christopher Zizzi, who is Planned Parenthood's, Planned Parenthood's statistician in the 1960s and 70s, um, said that these purported deaths, they, they said that they were, they, were, they were purported deaths of five to 10,000 deaths a year from uh, illegal abortions. He declared them unmitigated nonsense. Noting that 45,000 American women of reproductive age die every year from all causes, it's inconceivable that so large a number as five to 10,000 come from one source. Mary Calderon, the former medical director of Planned Parenthood, wrote in 1960, so 13 years before Roe v. Wade, abortion is no longer a dangerous procedure. In 1957, there were only 260 deaths in the whole country attributed to abortions of any kind. She noted that antibiotics and chemotherapy, as well as 90% of illegal abortions being done by physicians, trained as such, who had good standing in their communities. Um, there's just, when people throw these arguments out, they're, they're merely regurgitating things that they have heard um, without any real understanding of uh, what is actually decades-old um, refutations. We should find ourselves seeking to simplify the issue in any conversation, asking questions instead of making statements. Asking questions like, does each and every human being have an equal right to life? And then offering, if I can show you from science that the unborn are members of the human family, would you agree that they have a right to life? And then this simple question that Scott Klusendorf presents, do you think there's a danger in creating two classes of human beings? One class of human being who are called persons that we can't kill, and another class of human beings who are non-persons that we can kill. And what has our history been like When we have done that, keeping the issue simple on the issue of what is the unborn helps us to cut through many of the arguments that are brought against pro-life apologetics. So what can we do to take action if we are convinced of the value of human life in the womb? And we want to commit ourselves to protection of the unborn. What can we do? Well, first, again, as I said, no one should be motivated by guilt. But we should be motivated by grace. The scriptures call us to stand for uh, those who are being treated unjustly. So, And we ourselves have been forgiven so much. May we be motivated by what we have received of freedom and forgiveness and life and use that to motivate us to stand for the protection of others. What can we do? I feel one of the most important things we can do is pray. And that may seem like something that's just tacked on. A lot of times it's the last thing on a list. Everybody says it's not because it's the least important. Um, And praying to us can often seem like we're not really doing anything. That's not the way Scripture presents prayer. Scripture presents the Lord, our Heavenly Father, with His ear toward the righteous to hear the cries and that He acts and responds to our cries. And so praying is one of the most important things that we can do. Uh, I would invite you. We have a prayer meeting coming up. When is that? September twenty. It's here in this building, in this room. I was like... Driving over, I was like, I didn't get the date on what it is. I have it here. Um, Anyway, it's coming up in September. I think it's the 24th, Saturday the 24th. where we are gathering here to pray. We did one just a few months ago. We're trying to do two a month. And this is really for the goal of gathering uh, evangelical believers together to spend time praying. But you can do this in your own churches. You can do this uh, in a small group. Uh, We go out on... Uh, during 40 Days for Life, which is a, a non-denominational uh, commitment to praying for 40 days, uh, once in the spring, once in the fall, in front of Planned Parenthood. Uh, this began down in Texas and uh, started as just a one-time event. Uh, they were praying in front of, what was the town they were in? Do you remember? College Station, Texas. Uh, they were praying in front of that Planned Parenthood, and uh, and it became an annual Thing they started doing it twice a year, uh, and as they were praying, the director of the Planned Parenthood um, became convinced of pro life and and became a Christian and left her position. And since that happened, the uh, the abortion clinic closed down. I think it was twelve years they were praying. The abortion clinic turned closed down, and now forty days for life has their offices in that building where they are. And 40 Days for Life has hundreds and hundreds of these uh, set up. We do it in front of Planned Parenthood um, twice a year. You go down, you can sign up for an hour, you can do it as frequently as you want over 40 days. Um, In thinking about if your church has 100 adult members in it and every one of them spent one hour praying in front of Planned Parenthood, what effect... Could a hundred hours of prayer have on the lives of newborns, of mothers, of abortion workers, on the lives of fathers who are facing uh, the responsibility of an unplanned pregnancy, on our legislature, on our culture, and on our churches? A hundred hours of prayer simply because every member of your church spent one hour praying We have the ear of God. We should be appealing to heaven to turn this injustice around and make it illegal. What else can we do? Educate yourself. As I said, there is a list of recommended resources at the back. Um, I'll leave you to those. Um, So many uh, people have never heard uh, a sermon uh, on pro-life issues, have never heard a, an apologetic for a pro-life ethic, have never um, er, or don't remember uh, the stages of fetal development uh, and recognize. Many aren't aware of what an abortion actually is. You can go to these websites. You can see videos. Um, there are videos that are animated, um, still difficult to watch, um, uh, but but not uh, realistically graphic, but animated um, of Former abortionists explaining what an abortion is. Educate yourself. There are videos of people uh, out on the street being asked, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And pro-choice, um, would you watch this video? And just the abortionists explaining what happens. Should this be legal to be tearing the limbs from a child with a pair of, of clamps? Uh, and after watching it, they just think, God, this. they become aware this is not right. You can see it's not right. This is a human being. Um, Educate yourself as to uh, how to make arguments for pro-life ethic and what is going on in your own town, in your own state. And get involved. Get involved. Sidewalk counseling is is one of those things that feels very intimidating. But I tell you, the more you do it, uh, the more comfortable you get being down there. And sidewalk counseling can be very broad. Um, sometimes it can be just be a, being a presence. Sometimes just being in front of Planned Parenthood as a presence, saying life is valuable, is, uh, is a wonderful testimony to have to the community around us. It forces every person driving by to think about the issue uh, and to have to reconcile in their minds what they think about this. Um, but you also could have the opportunity to speak with men and women in need Um, in the moment of crisis, uh, and offer them hope and offer them help. Um, You can get training on that. In fact, um, Speak for the Unborn is an organization birthed out of the Southern Baptist Convention, started down in Louisville. Uh, They actually wear um, the vests just like the escorts. So when you go down to Planned Parenthood, you see the escorts have these orange vests on. Well, uh, I love Speak for the Unborn. They go and get these pink vests, so they have their own vests on out front. And as women are walking up, now their setup is different because they're not blocked off from the parking lot. They can approach ladies as they approach the facility. Um, we have this line that says, do not cross, so we have to be careful. Um, but, but looking for an opportunity to appeal to someone who's in need, that there's help available, and the value of their child and their own value in the eyes of God uh, is a wonderful way to get involved. Supporting uh, pregnancy resource centers. There are several in our area, um, and uh, the, the the closest one being Chester County Connect Care. There's also a birthright in town, um, but look, they are always in need of resources, always in need of funding. We we had. Um, I also lead a pro life luncheon at our church twice a year for, uh, for pastors and pro-life leaders. So if any of you are pastors or pro-life leaders, we'd love to have you come attend these lunches. We do them twice a year. And last time, um, we had Destiny uh, Diggs, who is the director out at uh, Delaware Counter County Crisis Pregnancy Center. Is that right, Delaware County? Um, and uh, they are right down there in the heart of Chester. And they have been really in need of resources. They've had to uh, go from being open five days a week to two days a week. They have ultrasounds, but since COVID, they haven't had any trained technicians who can come uh, and run the ultrasound. So they, I think they have four machines, but they need help. Um, uh, these people are on the front lines, and we can help both with resources, with prayer, uh, finances. Um, and if you know of anyone in the medical industry who is... Uh, Ultrasound certified, um, they would really uh, be helped by that. Um, I'm going to finish up here. Two more things I just want. Oh, uh, in our churches, uh, preaching on uh, the issue of abortion... Um, this is one thing. Our church has followed uh, John Piper's example here, and I think he set a wonderful example where uh, in in January he begins with uh, the same three messages, same three topics each year. Uh, his first week is on prayer. His second week is on ethnic justice. His third week is on um, uh, the issue of abortion. And uh, by setting that out at the beginning of the year, it's just a wonderful uh, pattern uh, to keep this in front of people. But he, for over 20 years, John Piper preached Uh, once a year at least, on the issue of abortion and brought that before His people and taught them and trained them from the Scriptures um, on this issue of justice. Um, We should not be afraid. We are often afraid that that it is going to be divisive or that it is going to seem political. And we have to remember, pastors, this is not an issue of politics. This is an issue of uh, Scripture. This is an issue of theology. And we can... Um, call our people to take action. For those here who uh, are younger, for college students or just out of college, educate yourselves. Be be able to make a compelling argument. Learn how to keep people on the issue as you engage them in conversation and don't be distracted um, by uh, their accusations or personal attacks, attempts to change the subject. Remember, 1 Peter 3 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Uh, I, again, I love David Filson. He's, he calls uh, the defenders uh, of the preborn as hope defenders. He said, we must position ourselves in the defense of the faith and the defense of the preborn as hope defenders. The object of our defense is nothing less than that which is most needful today, the hope that the Christian faith alone offers. We are to do this with gentleness and respect, the reverence due, or even those with whom we disagree most, as they, just like the unborn children we seek to protect, are gloriously created Imago Dei.
1: Thank you, Joseph. We are now going to uh, open up a time of Q&A. Uh, so there will be two mics, one down here on this side, one on the other side. So you can go ahead and begin to uh, form a line behind these mics. Uh, but first, I want to pose uh, just a, a quick question to you while we're waiting for uh, some people to line up. So you, you talked about the uh, just the... The the amount of kind of vitriol and divisiveness that is surrounding the conversation of abortion uh, right now. And so because of that, people are often uh, maybe afraid to engage or we see people engaging online in perhaps some unhelpful ways. What principles, building off of kind of what you closed on, would you give to people as they are seeking to engage uh, their pro-choice neighbors?
0: Yeah, um, we, we talked about this a little bit before um, the meeting. Uh, I think one important aspect is recognizing when a conversation is actually a conversation and when it's just an argument or a divisive uh, moment. Um, you'll find when we're down at the clinic, sometimes, like I said, there are a couple of young ladies that would come, and they would come with vulgar signs, and they would come with these different things. They're not looking to have a conversation for real um, but once they were engaged with kindness, there was actually some real interaction that happened. Uh, I will regularly before I leave uh, the when I 'm praying if the escorts are out in front of the clinic i'll invite any of them to have a conversation I'll say, you know this is who I am, I'm Joseph Segora. you can look me up on our church website. Um, I would be glad to take any one of you to lunch. And have a conversation. I feel the best way for us to interact over this is to to listen to one another and talk. I'd be glad to look at any resource that has been helpful to you. Uh, I'd be glad to offer a resource and have conversation over those things. Um, So if a person is really uh, willing to have a conversation, I think that uh, through gentleness, we can de-escalate and bring it to a normal conversational tone. And then I think it's good to ask questions. Um, we don't always have to be on the defensive answering their questions. I think asking their questions: Why do you believe that? Why why do you think that? Um, and uh, and then bringing them back to that one that one central idea: What is the unborn? So what do you think the unborn are? Why do you think a clump of, they're just a clump of cells? And and um, how do you you know asking them to defend their arguments. If there's nothing different about uh, this group of cells except that it needs to develop, um, it is the same human being, has all of the same genetic makeup scientifically, then why is it okay to kill it then and not now? Um, So I think just seeking to be uh, gracious and and wise in the way we communicate.
1: One other quick question. So you you touched on uh, Delaware County Connect Care and Chester County Connect Care as uh, crisis pregnancy centers that are always in need of resources. Uh, who should they speak to? Should people speak to? How can they get connected? Where do they go if if they're looking to volunteer in some capacity at one of those places?
0: Yeah, I would recommend just connecting them or uh, contacting them directly. Uh, like I said, again, Chester County Connect Care is just two blocks down the road. Um, And uh, you can knock on the door anytime. Getting on mailing lists. Most of the uh, uh, pregnancy resource centers have uh, annual fundraisers. Um, and so you just get on their email list and you'll find out uh, what they're doing. But they are always in need of help. They also offer some great services uh, like uh, school tours or youth group tours. Um, I know that uh, a friend of mine has taken his whole youth group over and they walk through the clinic. It's just a great way to educate our kids and to show them support.
1: There's work to be done right now, as you've pointed out, uh, for women who are newly pregnant. And there's heart work to be done in the coming generations of women who are not yet of childbearing age and for Christian women in this church right here uh,
0: who both have their own children and who are spiritual mothers in the body of Christ. For the women in our churches, how would you recommend we work to change our culture of self-reliance for how we shape our bodies, how we as Christian women grasp for control over our life
1: situations located in an affluent, self-reliant, affirming context here on the main line?
0: So good. Can anyone answer these questions or am I supposed to? Um, no, that's excellent. I, I think, again, this is where um, the teaching and discipleship becomes so important. Uh, pastors, you hear this question, this is our responsibility to, to help uh, uh, our church members um, understand who they are in the Lord, understand the impact of the world on their lives, understand what it is to live lives of faith uh, and walk near with Christ. So I, I think these are aspects of teaching and of discipleship. Um, one of the resources mentioned on here that um, that my pastor, Jared Mellinger, recommends is um, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Um, that... That's a book about uh, the moral revolution and sexuality, um, and there are two chapters in there on abortion. But it addresses many of these issues, um, and uh, for women, it would be a great resource. Joseph. Pastor Joseph, thank you for this talk. I come
1: to most of these uh, Sunday Night Theologies, and yours is the best one and the <laughs> most important one. Come on. Uh, we dead, know each other, so. <laughs> dead serious. Dead serious. Um, I, you're a rare breed, a pastor that actually goes out and prays and does sidewalk ministry to these places. I'm curious, just your personal testimony. How did, is this something that's always been on your heart as a pastor? Did, what, did something happen? Like, how did God move in your life to get you so focused on this?
0: Yeah, I, I think that. um, when I was saved in high school, uh, my wife and I we went to college together, and while we were on campus, um, we got involved with the Students for Life group. Friends of ours were running, and we just really felt the weight of this issue. Um, we had uh, I had already been doing some child sponsorship, uh, like through Compassion International, and then later our church established a. a uh, uh, organization called Covenant Mercies, where we sponsor uh, AIDS orphans in in certain African nations, and so we've just always participated in that that idea of of um, caring for children and caring for the fatherless. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that um, that early experience in college and standing for the for the unborn is is what uh, motivated us, and then um, later in our marriage, uh, we just. We're reading, looking at the issue, realizing the statistics, the numbers, seeing the weight of it, uh, the level of injustice in it, uh, the dehumanizing nature of it. Um, those were things that uh, that really prompted us and motivated us to to get involved and, and try to stay involved, and now to get others involved. We we really have a heart to get other evangelicals. So much of of what we have experienced uh, has. Um, been led by uh, the Catholic Church, which um, really is to be commended for their stance on protecting human life and standing against abortion. Um, and uh, and we found as we got more and more involved, there were just very few evangelicals that were present. And sometimes that's because uh, evangelicals may not know how to relate or, or the, the theological differences can be a challenge. You know, we have attended a lot of Um, prayer meetings or services or things where people are praying the rosary and doing these different things which we would would not jive with theologically. Um, But what what we found is that we're not there to to affirm um, opposing theologies, but we're joining together as uh, co-belligerents, as a phrase that's used, uh, to stand against an injustice. And we can join with others and stand against an injustice. And even if they uh, may do things or have certain practices that aren't always uh, the way that we uh, connect, uh, I still believe that we can work together. I heard one, one apologist say, you know, if, um, if your, your two-year-old was, uh, fell in a pool and needed to be revived, um, you wouldn't be arguing with the, the EMT because he's Catholic trying to save the life of this child. Um, you know, we can work together uh, for the cause of justice uh, without needing to agree on every theological issue. But so, but we've met some wonderful people uh, in the pro-life movement, in the Catholic Church, and some of them who have been doing this for forty and near fifty years. Uh, when we came along, you know, uh, they they just thought we were such youngins, but they were so excited because they had been they're in their seventies and eighties now, and they've been doing this for for decades. Um, uh, they have been a great encouragement to us and they have even prompted to us and said, listen, we reach out to evangelical churches. It's very difficult to get them involved. They're the ones that recommended we start our own prayer meeting. You know, like, why, why are we as evangelicals not able to get our thing together? The, our, our Catholic friends were saying, you know, why don't you do your own meeting? Maybe people will come to that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just we're working together.
1: Down over here.
2: Howdy. Uh, question from a friend who couldn't be here tonight. Um, first, let me preface by asking, are you familiar with the terms uh, incrementalist and abolitionist? Yes. Okay, so that's what his question is about. Um, according to the 14th Amendment of the bill, in the Bill of Rights, all people are entitled to equal protection under the law, including unborn children. This is a principle we believe as true as Christians, believing that all humans are made in the image of God, having dignity and worth no matter what stage of human development we are in in order for us to be consistent as Christians in calling abortion the murder of the unborn and against the law of the land, should we be calling for the abolition of abortion or the um, incremental dismantling of it? And what would you say to Christians who are more of the on the incrementalist camp?
0: Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think we should be both. And uh, so let me explain. So incrementalists are those who are saying um, that... Uh, the absolute removal of abortion may not be attainable, but we will take small steps and look for different things, like uh, things they do is um, passing laws that require a waiting period bef- between your first consultation and when you can have an abortion, um, requiring parental rights, requiring uh, preg- uh, uh, abortion clinics to be held to the same standards as, um, as uh, medical facilities, um, these things are not directly stopping abortion, but they're seeking to put uh, put um, uh, blocks in the way uh, that make it more challenging to get abortion. Hopefully, with the co- with the goal of reducing the number of abortions, um, having a heartbeat bill uh, at 12 weeks uh, um, or or or. You know, these types of laws that are minimizing the number of abortions but not outlawing abortions. Uh, An incrementalist approach is saying we're never going to totally change the culture. Let's do these things to uh, slow it down and reduce the number. An abolitionist is saying um, we need to absolutely say no abortion at all and we can't take anything else for an answer. We won't. We won't go halfway. We won't work on these things. It has to be an outright outlawing. Um, I believe that we are to be uh, that we can be faithful incrementalists with the goal of abolition. Our goal is the outlawing of abortion. Our goal is the protection of the unborn in the womb, making them legally protected as human beings. Um, if we need to take incremental steps in getting to that goal, I think that we should. Um, But, uh, and so, so that's the way that I would answer that. And I would tell someone who is just an incrementalist and doesn't think it will ever be uh, made outlawed. I would say, um, I think we need to fight with the goal of, of uh, abolishing abortion. And for the abolitionists that can't see, um, or that feels that we're not doing enough by, by making smaller laws, I would just encourage them, that um, reducing the number of abortions is saving lives, and our goal is always set on that making it illegal um, that 's just one comment there on on legislation that 's another application that i that I cut out here as we were running that time um, but uh, we talked earlier uh, with some of the interns they were asking you know what is the responsibility of the church in teaching against these things, and what about laws and how does that how does that connect and relate um, we live in a country where we have a say as individuals. I believe the church's responsibility is to teach uh, the biblical ethics um, of the value of human life and against uh, abortion. And then as individual Christians, we have a responsibility uh, where we have the opportunity to be involved in our own governing and to call for the government to do justice. And I believe the church, even as we pray for all Leaders and kings and princes and those who lead—we are to be praying that they would do justice, Um, and we can act and call them to do justice. Legislation is an important part of um, of having a a moral land. And um, uh, there's there's a great quote, Martin Luther King quote. He says, uh, "While it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated." It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. So there's a need for executive orders. There's a need for judicial decrees. There's a need for civil rights legislation on the local scale within states and on the national scale from the federal government. And I believe that same uh, argument applies in this case.
1: We'll take two more. Rodney?
2: Yeah, thanks for your lecture tonight, brother. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to how Christians can publicly argue and advocate for the value of human life in a way that rules out the legality of abortion and things like assisted suicide. And I say that because I think oftentimes the pro-life... Say that
0: one more time, Rodney. In a way that what?
2: That rules out the legality of abortion and assisted suicide. Um, and I say that because... Oftentimes, the pro-life argument is framed around uh, a right to human life, which I agree with, Uh, but a right is also something that doesn't necessarily have to be exercised by the person that has it. So uh, understanding someone to have a right can um, stop people from infringing on that right, but it doesn't mandate the use of that right, whether that's free speech. or And some people, many are actually arguing that life is a right to life, and therefore, you. Don't have to. You might be able to lay it down. So, how how can we consistently argue for the value of life using that rights language, but also in a way that is consistent in terms of ruling out abortion and things like assisted suicide? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in making, so so you're saying if you argue, I have a right to be alive, does that then? equate with I have a right to end my own life because the right is mine um, and uh, the the um, the right to life is a declaration about what it is to be human um, uh, we are created in the image of God we we are created with um, the we are given life. And and I think that the argument there is that um, that is not something to be trifled with or taken away uh, in, um, in an unmitigated way, whether by someone else or by ourselves. It's the essence of who we are, the value of who we are, the value of life, the value of being created in the image of God um, uh, is what is what makes us, is part of what makes us human. And so I think, um, yeah, I think I would argue that uh, that sense of we uh, are not to take anyone else's lives. We are not to take our own lives because we are created to image back God. Yeah, I have to think, Yeah, I think one of the things about the pro-life argument is is like keeping it simple and base. What we're talking about is life in the womb, and like we're talking about that specifically. So when we talk about a right to life, it's that essence of that can't be taken. Um, I think end of life issues, while related or or you know derivative from in those arguments of value, um, there's different ethical arguments for that. Uh, so I would. I, I think just sticking to that idea of pro-life is about protecting the unborn, um, that would be.
1: Last question from William. I don't personally think this, but what would you say to Christians who claim to be pro-life but don't want abortion to be illegal because there are better ways to deal with it?
0: Yeah, better ways to deal with it. Um, I think that when we're talking about uh, legislation, we are to be promoting, looking for laws that promote good and restrain evil. Um, I mean, that's what our laws are, are intended to do, promoting good and restraining evil. And so um, abortion is the killing of an innocent person. So I don't know how you better deal with killing an innocent person. Uh, you know, that's why I would just argue. I just say this: listen, what you're arguing is taking innocent people and killing them. There's a better way to deal with it than making that illegal, than making laws about that. It just doesn't. It just doesn't really make any sense. Um, so,
1: would you all help me thank Joseph for his time tonight?
0: Thank you all for having me. Glad to be here.